Welcome to My Hard Drive Died, episode number 30, a show about hard drives, data recovery, forensics, and more. I'm your host, Jeff Alish. My Hard Drive Died is brought to you by Reclaim Me Pro, the all-in-one highly configurable data recovery software. For a free 14-day trial, go to reclaimme-pro.com. I am back with Scott Moulton from myharddrivedied.com. How are you doing, Scott? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Jeff? I am doing excellent. I'm ready to talk about some technological advances, hopefully. Oh, okay, awesome. Uh, <laughs> if there are any, <laughs> if there are any, there's there's a few here and there. Um, Deep Spar released a new tool called the Rapid Spar. So uh, so at least in you know the data recovery side, there's at least a new tool to look at. Um, it's I'm still kind of beta testing it, trying to figure out whether or not I like it or not. That's that's the other thing. But uh, you know, but at least from that standpoint, there is at least some new equipment. Um, not much more than that. That's pretty much about as far as we've gotten at this point. Just some, you know, updates to some of the regular Atola and Deep Spar software and things like that. But, you know, my big news is I'm going to Australia to teach, leaving next week. So uh, nice. So hopefully there'll be like a whole other, a lot of other people that are listening that'll be like, hey, you're in Australia, come and see me, or come see me at class. <laughs> right there, you go. Now you just had a class down in Georgia a few weeks back, correct? Yes, yes, I did have a class in Georgia, and then a about two months ago, I had one in DC. Oh, okay. So how how was the last couple of classes there? Um, it's been okay. Uh, sales weren't too great in the last class here for Atlanta, but the class went smoothly. Everything seemed to work fine. Uh, I had lost a couple of people at the last minute, so. Uh, but everything, everything smooth. Uh, great class. Uh, everybody's been getting a hundred percent at reassembly and disassembly of drives. So, you know, the the process uh, is still working on even all current new hard drives and everything that's still coming out. So, um, you know, with the possible exception of helium drives, which we really haven't spent any real time with yet, because uh, I, I guess at least from the standpoint of where they're supposed to be, they're supposed to be in RAID arrays. So I'm not seeing a lot of dead ones that are from RAID arrays, only because they the rest of the raid array survived, not because the drives are surviving, because I think the drives are not surviving very well. Now, what but, is the difference between, what is a helium drive exactly? So, supposedly, here's, the theory is that we could fly the heads closer to the platters if we seal the drive and fill it with helium. Then the heads, because air is, the density of air versus helium uh, changes how high the, hot, the head can fly over the platter so in theory, if you have uh, helium, the head can float closer to the platter with, without scratching the platter or doing any other damage to the platter. So they seal the drives now and pack them with helium so that the head can just skirt the top of the drive. Now, I don't know how true and how, <laughs> how you know, in reality, how much of a difference it makes. There's a lot of things about helium that everybody that i've talked to everybody that knows anything about gases and any you know physicists in, in you know the problem with helium is that it has a tendency to leak out and that it's very hard to contain over a long period of time without being in like a you know an actual um oxygen tank or you know helium right. tank so so i don't know in reality if this isn't just a marketing ploy or some other you know pile we just, we just really don't know at this point. It seems like there's a lot of marketing lies to try to get more and more sales as things continue on. Yeah, I was just thinking about things like even helium balloons. And I understand that the rubber or whatever the other material is made out of is, is going to be porous to a certain extent. But helium always 
leaks out no matter how tight you have those things. And there's different qualities too. Sometimes you can have helium that'll that'll stay for a long time and sometimes it's gone very quickly. So I'm just thinking about a mechanical drive of having helium in there. There's it, it would be interesting to see that it doesn't leak at all because I would think that that stuff would dissipate after a while. Yeah, I, I definitely think it's a problem. I just don't see how long term that that's going to work. Uh, and and if it does, you know, then what happens? Your head scratches the platter, and then there's damage. I mean, you know, it just sounds like there's already been a pile of problems with them as a whole. From what I understand, they haven't had a high survivability rate. But sure, you can submerge them in water, uh, which is different than the other. <laughs> okay. Part. Yeah. So you know, I guess maybe if you need one in your submarine, that sounds like a good choice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's wild. <laughs> I don't oh. know. I guess I guess only time will will tell. I just don't know. It, it's just hard to say at this point. That's that's the problem. Right. How long do you think it takes for us when new technology comes out? How long do you think it takes for us as an industry to figure out whether it's going to be long lasting or not? Um. I, you know, I, I think once something comes out. It either makes it or fails almost immediately, depending upon what the situation is. Because I'm pretty sure, from a standpoint of of uh, drives and things like that, we've seen in the past. Like for instance, the Death Star drives—they were really popular. IBM made the Death Star drives; they were really popular in the beginning. But within a year, they started dying in droves, and they had gotten a lot of awards and a lot of other things that you know made them very popular, and had even been in magazines and things that had made them popular. But a year later. They're all having problems, and then everybody stays away from them in droves. So, right. you know, it completely would collapse, and no one's going to buy that drive again from that standpoint. So, um, so you're talking about the Hitachi drives, correct? Yeah, well, they're Hitachi drives now, but at the time they were IBM. IBM owned them. Ah, okay. Gotcha. Yeah, I remember back in the day, a lot of those failing seemed like at a higher rate than a lot of even. What was out Mac stores and Western Digitals and all that kind of stuff back then? Yeah, there definitely there definitely was some problems. There were some major problems with uh, when you have a scratch on a platter, and you know physically at least it would you know eat away the rest of the disc. So you would have a huge problem. Um, it, you know, it's just one of those things where all of a sudden there's a, a huge problem because you have a mechanical problem and then it scratches the head loses you lose all your content on all your platters because it eats through all of them just like a flake coming off of a CD or a DVD oh. once that happens it happens across the entire platter and then it hits the other platter as well so you can have a you can actually have a scratch on a platter and it will still operate to a certain extent so yes if you have a scratch on a platter the the problem is so one side of one platter might you can even have it scratched, you know, pretty badly on one side of one platter. What you need is there's two things on the drive that need to survive. One is any other head and a section of the drive that's called the system area. The system area is sometimes on two sides of two platters um, or different, you know, there's multiple system areas in some cases. So when you have a system area that has survived, the heads will automatically fall over to the second system area. So if there's a scratch on the first one, the second one survives, it'll initialize on that. But you will lose data. You will not be able to read a portion of the drive wherever the platter is scratched. But we can, in data recovery, turn off a platter, a head on one side of the platter, and then read the other platters just fine. So that is 
that is completely plausible and completely possible to happen, and we do it every day. Okay. Our tools, our tools can control heads and turn them off. So that is that is a normal thing that can happen. Uh, it's hard for people to use a drive that has a bad head or had a scratch on one side of the platter because a lot of times the the sound that they'll hear is like it'll sound like it's knocking, like a hammer will go knock knock knock. Right. Uh, like you'll hear a head slapping back and forth as it's trying to initialize. Um, it, and that's mainly mainly because it's trying to read a section of the drive. It's trying to read something that it can't read. It's that that section of the drive is bad. Okay, gotcha. Now let me ask you another question because this this has always been curious to me. Why are some spinning hard drives louder than others? Like when um, they're writing data or even reading it, searching on the disk to try to find the information, it just seems like some of the ones, even the higher end ones, seem to be way loud. Well, I mean, you're you've got a spinning disk. You've got a spinning like some. Everybody's manufacturing something that's different. So that's the first thing. Second thing is older drives, like pre two thousand five, two thousand six, had ball bearings, and after two thousand five, had fluid dynamic bearings. So the bearings are completely different, and there is a huge difference in the amount of sound that those two will make. Oh, just that makes from, sense from the spinning disk. But right. now, you know, it's been a decade, so you're probably not seeing a whole lot of those from that standpoint now, but. It, it, it definitely is a problem. It definitely is something uh, from a standpoint of, of, you know, bearings were wearing out and it would start to cause a problem with the drive and you would have a lot more noise. Uh, and then all of a sudden with fluid dynamic bearings, they're a lot quieter. But now you've got heads that are moving, uh, you know, very fast over the platter. So you have a lot of movement that's actually happening. And you will still hear, you know, motors spinning up. Um, you'll hear heads moving. Um some drives are sealed better than others, have thicker metal. So some of the Western digital drives have a thicker uh, casing, which makes it harder to hear them. So, you know, it, it, it definitely can make a difference from how they're manufactured or what happens. Interesting, because I had two Western digital drives. One was a thinner Western digital drive, and I can't remember why they made that particular one thinner. And then I had, they were both built around 2007. And the thicker one was actually the one that was like really loud when it was writing data or trying to search for data. The other one almost seemed whisper quiet. And I'm like, what is the difference? These are about the same. They were built at about the same time, just two different style drives. So it just it perplexed me. <laughs> yeah. Um, and there definitely is, you know, from a standpoint of, of how they're manufactured, there are huge amounts of differences uh, from one to another. So, you know, some are going to be noisier than others. That's not going to be – there's oh. just no easy explanation from it from that standpoint. It's just always going to be that way. But a lot of your newer drives are going to end up being probably quieter than, like you said, the old drives from a decade ago. Well, I think we go through phases where sometimes they're they're quieter and then they're louder again as new technology comes out and then they're quieter again. And then, you know, as they manufacture them, find better ways to make them, find better ways to do things – but you know, speed and size is what they're they're most likely to focus on first, and then they may you know make things a little better over time from that standpoint. But I, I do see changes in the drives for same sizes. We'll actually have less platters, less material, less things as we progress with technology that lets us have higher aerial density. Okay, that sounds good. Now let me ask you another question. So something else I came across too was I've been buying one terabyte drives 
And I've been buying Western Digitals in the three and a half inch size, regular desktop hard drives. And I've been buying the HGST, the old Hitachi line through Western Digital now, both at one terabyte. Now, it, now I've had some people tell me that with the two and a half inch drive that you put in a laptop, those drives, be, they won't buy one terabyte because they're, afra- they're afraid of a failure rate at the one terabyte level versus getting maybe a 750 gig or something like that. It, it, is that one terabyte seemed to be a sweet spot, even in the two and a half inch drives to me. Am I wrong on that? Well, I, I think there's different technology from a two and a half versus a three and a half. So I personally think that, yeah, if you're like, for instance, two terabyte and below on three and a half inch discs are what I would consider to be more stable okay. than a four terabyte or a six terabyte. Right. Now, I think the four terabyte is more stable than a six terabyte or a 10 terabyte. As we start getting into different technologies, shingled technologies and things like that, as we start heading into different types of drives, I personally right now wouldn't consider probably buying anything over a four terabyte unless you had some practical application you needed it for, but you knew that you were going to be able to back it up or have some temporary solution. Because I, I definitely think you're looking at a territory where disaster is going to happen and the same is true of laptop hard drives um the only thing about laptops in my opinion is that really because it's portable and you know it can be lost and there's a lot of other things uh, i personally would say you need to be more um astute about backups or at least syncing your data using the cloud services or something to make sure that there's a backup of your data use dropbox or something so that your live files are backed up any of my laptops could disappear and i wouldn't lose anything because the volatile data the things that i have uh, are actually technically not huge i mean i I might have um you know 300 uh, gigs or so of valuable things from multiple machines altogether. Okay. And if I'm syncing those through Dropbox or syncing those with a cloud service or syncing those with, you know, some other tools, um, if a laptop disappears, I'm not, it, it means nothing from that standpoint. So you're only talking about the temporary use of your laptop. If, if I'm on a trip and a drive dies, I'm just going to go, you know, and it's critical. I'm just going to go to a local store and either buy another driver, buy another laptop okay. and then just turn back on my syncing and I'm back in business. And so, you know, other than the installation of your applications, it's, you know, that's the pain these days. The pain is really your setup and your configuration. And so, and I really wish that would get better from a standpoint of a bundling process, you know, like kind of like they do for, you know, games and things like that these days where you're starting to have, you know, the cloud services that will carry your technology with it from that standpoint. Um you know, your game, your save, your game, you know, they're they're packaging it so that if you log in through, you know, another PS4 that basically you can still continue to play your same games. And so I think that's what really needs to happen in the PC world where it needs to be. And, and some of it, you know, there has been some movement from a standpoint of Microsoft trying to make roaming profiles and things like that. But I just think it's not as invisible as it needs to be. And apps, that's the other problem is your applications. Um the way that they serialize stuff and the way you constantly have to keep going and hunting down serial numbers and typing stuff in, it's <laughs> archaic. Oh, it's yes. Ar- <laughs> it's super archaic at this point, but it's done on purpose so that you have to spend more money if you don't have it. Right. And so rather than just you know selling you a license, and, and some of them are doing it, like for instance, you know Adobe now, if you buy their you know, it's a $10 or whatever, a hundred dollar service that they're charging for all of their service for all the things so that you always just have your login and then you have access to your apps. 
and I'm not really fond of that idea either. I still prefer a single payment and, you know, and have your app or have something from that standpoint. But, um, but, you know, it's really old dealing with even Microsoft office. And I know they're making strides the other direction, but I still don't think that they've really done a good job of moving people away with an affordable resource to office to, uh, you know, they want you to keep having to hunt down a serial number and type it in and do things. And why don't we just have like, you know, our, profile somehow sync and roam with us if we have a new laptop and we we start it up and i know there are ways to do that so i don't need like a million emails coming to me to tell me all the variations but i just don't feel like it's very smooth i don't think it's a very fun you know it it's just not it's not like it is with our phones like right now at least with our phones for the most part our stuff is being backed up we get a new phone if we lost our phone we can almost get back exactly where we were it may take a long time for it to download all the stuff but you can get functional again at the loss of a phone. Right. Oh, that's absolutely true. Yeah, I, I use the Adobe Cloud, and it's, uh, I think for mine, it's $31.79 a month. And that gives me all the access to the Adobe stuff. And it makes it nice because I can put it on up to two computers. And all you really have to do is, if I need to pull it off of one computer and move it to another, I can do that easily. Or if that computer dies, because this did happen to me, you can basically go to Adobe, disallow all the computers it was set up on, and then just reset up that software, just re-download yep. it again. And I will tell you, from Microsoft Office 2013, the download file that they gave me for installing that, I don't actually, even though they gave me a key in an email, I've never had to put the key in. So somehow they've made it with that executable file that I've just been able to install it. Or it, maybe it has something to do with my Microsoft login account. Yeah, that's probably your login that's, account. That's probably because I've already logged in, obviously, on the computer. So when I install it, it never asks me for a key. It just goes, yep, here you go, boom, yeah. done. I mean, I'm still a big fan of having a local installation of your of your, you know, rather than doing, you know, three, you know, even though Office 365 has a way to work offline, I'm still not a big fan of that. I prefer to have the full package and do, you know, at least for Office. I might be fine with a bunch of other packages, but that's the one. And maybe it's because I'm tied so much to presentations and doing training and sure. doing things. I just want it to be static. I don't want it to change. I don't want it to do updates. I can't tell you how many times I've had. I, I mean, I'm pretty. I'm, I, I pull back now on updates as much as possible. Things that don't matter to me, I don't mind updating. But the things that are critical, the things that I do every day, um, I will only do at periods of time. Where, okay. You know, then and if I have a lot of equipment, I only do half of the equipment so I can test the other half, or you know, I leave one or two behind so that if something critical happens that I, and a bug interferes with stuff, and we have to test stuff all the time like that. So I'm still at a spot where. You know, I don't want you to push updates to my Microsoft Office and then one day it not work because I'm in the middle of a class and I've now got to deal with your stupid serial number or some other thing. That's and, a good uh, point. Yeah, you're right. And, and so I do freeze things from that standpoint and don't do updates. Like I still, I'm still not going to do on a on a machine that I'm going to go out and do training on. I'm still not going to do El Capitan on Macs because, you know. I, there's just not enough time for me to really figure out some of the bugs and some of the problems until you're already in the middle of something that's too late. <laughs> right. <laughs> then and you're like, so, oh, yeah. So, so when I'm doing, you know, data recovery is the same problem. Uh, a lot of the data recovery tools, when they do updates, um, one of the things that really annoys you a lot about those updates is that if you're in the, so a lot of people might not understand this. And, and so I'll try to explain what will happen, but so you're, you're making a clone of a drive, and there's a map, basically. There's a, this, this, most of the tools all have 
an item that keeps track of the status of the drive. So you're keeping track of what sectors are bad, what sectors are copied, what things have happened. And there's a map file of some kind, whether, you know, different companies call it different things, but every tool has one. And when you do an upgrade or an update, sometimes they can't use the previous map file. So if you're in the middle of, you know, you've got 65 recoveries going on and they're all stacked over here. And sometimes you've got to go back to one or two of those recoveries to look for something or do something. If you update your machine, you cannot go back to those. So you have to go back to the previous version. So if you flash it and you update oh. your machine, you've got to reflash it back to an old version to get back to a previous one for a recovery. And you don't always know this in the process that they've updated and now your map file doesn't work. So I'm dealing with hundreds of drives and I have critical drives or forensics drives that if I take it to a new machine or to a new thing that the map file won't work. So I go for a pretty extended long period of time until I absolutely need a change or an update or there's a new drive that came in that um, you know is a newer version of a drive that I have to have this update for. So I tend to avoid a lot of updates for you know mission critical things. Because you're and, never going to have enough downtime in order to be able to get the update down and to be able to test it to make sure it's going to work the way you need it to. Well, it's pretty hard to test these things until you're doing them. Right. So you have to be doing a drive. <laughs> you have to be living on these things <sighs> and gradually find out the bugs or the problem or the things that don't work this time that didn't work. And then you've got to contact support and see if they can verify it or see if they know about it. Um, you know, and... and there has been a slow movement of switching from 64-bit to 30, you know, from 32-bit to 64-bit. So there's other problems with some of that stuff. Like, um, as an example, on a deep spar, at least currently, um, it you you can run it and use software that's 64-bit against the deep spar, but you can't do firmware updates with 64-bit. You have to have a 32-bit machine to do the firmware updates. So there's some things that you get stuck with where okay, well, now we've got to go find an old XP machine even though we weren't using this machine. If I'm in the field or I'm out teaching a class, I have 64-bit machines with me. I don't have 32-bit. Like, you know, and I go back and forth with different stuff, and it becomes really a hassle to switch back and forth between versions. And I know some people feel a little bit like that about Microsoft Outlook because when Outlook came out or the new Office came out, um, the newest version of Office has this you know, there's three colors. Like that's all you can choose is white color or the blue <laughs> right. gray color, whatever it is. And, and, and all of a sudden all these people who were used to the way the screen looked are, are up in arms about how this even, you know, you can't even read your screen anymore because your eyes hurt from looking at this, this terrible color and background. Right. And those are hard things to go backwards. They're hard things to uninstall and go back to a previous version, and it takes hours in some cases to, to gut your system to get stuff back. And But it's even worse when it's your hardware, when it's your physical hardware and you're doing hard drives and you're disassembling stuff. So I know I'm just griping, but uh, but you know that's one of the problems I have with also things being connected and then starting to do automatic updates. You know, Sometimes you'll be on your phone, and you know everybody's are automatic updates now on your phone because if you don't do it, you can't do it. Um, you have all of a sudden in a week, you have 700 f app updates and you can't even install them because you don't have enough free space. So, right. Yeah. You know, you've got to let them update all the time. Or if you turn that feature off, you don't know when something's not going to work someday when you're on the road because there'll be, you don't have this update. So, but, you know, your hassle is then they completely change your app. And, you know, one day eBay looks really awesome this way. 
and then tomorrow you've lost all your settings and all your stuff and eBay completely changed their app so that now it looks like, you know, you've got bubbles everywhere. It's like, it's horrible. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen these things that have been happening. I, you know, I use so, a few, I use a handful of apps I, on I my phone, have, but not, not enough to where I go, but there are a lot of changes that do happen to even the, the Gmail apps and in different things there that, it changes things and you definitely have to take the time to figure out, okay, how do I get back to where I was at? How do I check this folder in this email? Those things. It sounds nice at first, but then sure. all of a sudden those people who really liked it or were, I mean, there may be some problems with some of the things and maybe they're getting complaints about things, but the people who are happy with it don't complain. So therefore they don't know how many people are happy. Right. And so, so that's a real problem for me. Like eBay, eBay completely destroyed their app. Uh, and and completely useless. Like I would have never updated if if you know if it wasn't automatic and didn't happen. And you know I use eBay on a frequent basis as you know donor drives and things like that that we go to buy. But one of the one of the points I was trying to get to, and one of the things that's that's happening. Um, so I mentioned earlier, there's a new there's a new tool. Rapid Spar is a new tool from DeepSpar. And and you know I, I really like the guys at DeepSparters a lot to like about their tools, and I really. Um, they're very granular. I really like some of the stuff, and they tried to come out with a tool that's as automatic as possible so that there's no granularity to it. But one of the huge problems, or at least in my mind right now, and maybe it's, you know, I'm old. Maybe this is how you feel like you're getting old. You know, like when you listen to the radio, <laughs> you don't know anybody on the radio anymore. Maybe that's what it feels like. Uh, so I'm not like that yet. But, I was um, going to say, actually, <laughs> no. See, when I'm listening to the radio and I hear something from the 80s and they call it classic. That's yeah. when I know I'm old. Well, when I hear something and it's Drake, <laughs> I change the channel. <laughs> oh. no, station, station. They don't call them channels anymore. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's your, anyway, so uh, so what I was trying to say was, uh, so Rapid Spar, this uh, new Deep Spar device, one of their ideas is that it's basically going to be a connected device. And uh, so they're trying to automate the process so that you don't have to do this work that the tool is going to do the work and it's going to try to figure out on its own what it needs. So they have this cloud service that's called Nebulous or something. And so when you're running a data recovery, you can kind of just start it and you're not supposed to touch anything. And it's supposed to be able to go out to the cloud, compare the stuff that's happening on your drive to diagnostics that exist in the cloud. If it needs a firmware update, it's going to automatically do a firmware update to the hard drive. I mean, not a firmware update to itself. If it needs a firmware update to the hard drive, automatically download that and automatically apply that to the drive. And there's supposed to be all these things that are supposed to happen automatically from that perspective. And, and, and maybe, again, it's just me. Maybe I just have this problem because I don't want things like that to happen without me knowing it. I don't right. want things like that to be automatic. And there's a whole lot of other problems with being on cloud services because, you know, if they're going to update things or they're changing things or they're doing things, then your stuff doesn't do the same thing twice. It starts to get really hard to predict problems and certain things that are going to occur. And when you're dealing with data recoveries, you're already dealing with hard drives that don't do the same thing twice. So, so uh, and, and this is the first time I've kind of seen the data recovery community kind of go this way where it's, uh, you know, it's it's based on, automatic updates, automatic things, automatic, and and maybe, and I don't mean the app itself that's handling, because maybe that part's not automatic, but, you know, the idea that there's a service and that the service is going to be pushing content down instead of, of you making a choice. Right, yeah, and, it should still give you a choice of whether you want to upgrade right now, and I think when it comes well, down to I don't Windows mean to 10. I'm not talking about, and when I say that, I don't mean, because I'm thinking of, 
and, and maybe I didn't completely explain it because it's not the software that we're worried about the upgrade. It's the patches that are applying to drives right. and okay. things like that that are happening on the fly. Algorithms for diagnostics and repairing the drive because it's supposed to be automatic at this point. It's going to be more like a kiosk kind of base gotcha. recovery. Shove, and, shove your drive in and it pops out all all repaired? Well, uh, shove your drive <laughs> in and the clone pops out all <laughs> that's, that's the idea is that the clone's going to be there. Um, and, but again, it's a connected service. There's no options for local service or local control or anything like that either. Um, there are some things where you don't have to have it connected and it works as a standalone unit for imaging, but it doesn't do some of the other features when that it's in that mode. Okay. So, so, but, but that was one of the things that I was kind of getting to is that I, you know, I don't know quite how to feel about this. Maybe it doesn't matter at some point. Um, I, I can tell you. There are core services inside my business or my company that I have been held hostage before by things that have happened by companies getting bought, automatic updates, you know, keys no longer being like, you know, for instance, I've had some databases where I had, you know, scanner tools and things like that. There were databases that would scan my data in and then, you know, keep your data. And uh, HP bought, I mentioned this before on one of the previous podcasts, HP bought the company that made the original salt Kira or something they bought the original company and then they like killed it and then they just bundled it with a scanner but then you couldn't buy the product you couldn't get licenses for it anymore eventually they don't care about the tool that they're delivering anymore and you can't even get it when you buy the scanner or anything anymore and so you get held hostage by your data because a, you don't have a perpetual license. You've got something that you constantly have to either update or pay a new licensing fee and then do app, um, a, you know, a online activation or something oh, like right. that. Okay. And I don't think people really understand how far we're going to get along this line before it's too late. Right. And then, because, what, and then what do you do at that point? Because you really need a way – I guess you really still need both. I, I think you still need that local way of being able to do what what it is you do in your business with your software or what you know anything there. But I can see some of the conveniences of having the cloud stuff, where it makes it a little bit easier for people to be able to do what they need to do. So, but you should still have well, the options. It's kind of this idea, like Windows Ten. You know, they're trying to do everything they can to push it down to everybody's computer so that sure. it automatically installs. So there's there's a whole, but I, I get you know their whole idea is that they don't want something to happen again like what happened with XP and XP is 15 16 years old it's been on machines nobody's in a hurry to upgrade if you're fine using it you're not in a hurry to go use Windows 10 or Windows 7 or anything right so they have no way of getting more money from you and so this theory is that if we just constantly are pushing things down from a cloud service they can constantly hit you for money on a regular basis right and you'll just have to give up because you have no other choice and um where i can see this the worst and, the, and i'm one of the few guys who probably does this because uh a few years ago i decided i was going to learn my company's accounting and i you know at one time I, w I had two huge i had four huge companies all together and uh i had 20 something employees so i didn't sit there and manage the money i didn't sit there and manage the day-to-day -day. like i you know i was master of my domain and i went out and commanded the people of my starship <laughs> enterprise how to do what i wanted them to do sure and so uh you know eventually i decide i'm going to do forensics and data recovery and i'm going to sell these other companies and and sell all my people <laughs> and so i did i sold all the people 
and uh, and kicked him out of the building. And then what I decided to do was learn the accounting side of my business. I also thought it would help me in forensics, and it does. It helps me a lot in forensics, understanding uh, accounting and the processes for accounting and forensic accounting. Um, and, and most people don't understand, too. I also did accounting system support. That's how I started my business 25 years ago was all these big servers that were accounting servers, uh, Great Plains and Solomon and the variety of stuff that was out there at the time, uh, Dynamics. Uh, I learned all those systems, and then I supported them, and that's how I grew the business. But I never did the accounting portion of my business. And one of the things I can tell you right now is that um, about two years ago, we, we used Peachtree here. And about two years ago, I was using Peachtree, and they had this automatic update system where the automatic update downloads, applies a patch, sends it out, and then you have to go apply this patch at all the other machines that use the software because there's several people who enter soft, enter content into the software. Well, it was right before like end of year, and it was time for everybody to do their upgrades. And they did this one thing where there was this patch that broke like a critical report. And, and I was sure they did it on purpose. Like I was absolutely <laughs> certain that the whole point that they did it was to break a critical item so that the new year – starts and then they could say well and, and that's what happened I, I called them they're like no yeah it's this broken we know it's broken the only way you can get it is we fixed it in this new version and so now and this was just a patch that had applied to something that was already working and so that kind of like shone the light for me that like okay so what you're saying is is that as long as we have things that are connected then you can be held hostage they'll they'll make you pay for their new version because that's the only place they're going to fix the thing that they broke on purpose that you were using to do your job. Oh. And so and so from that day forward, I decided, okay, fine. I have to pay for this update. There's no other way around it. I pay for the update, and then I will unplug it from the internet. And it will no longer be able to do updates, period, from here on out, because there's absolutely no reason for me to have accounting connected to the internet because there is nothing that needs to update. I don't do my own taxes. I have somebody who does taxes, so they have the tax tables. They have everything they need. And I know it sounds like I'm just rambling here, but what I'm trying to make everyone understand that you don't need the newest version. You don't always have to have the newest thing and the, and the thing that's connected and the thing that's online and the newest refresh. There are some things that are okay with that. I want the newest PlayStation because that's a gaming machine. Who cares? That's not my life. I'm not going to make a living. And so if it goes out of business or something disappears or something gets turned off, I'll switch sacks. But you know, who cares? It doesn't make any difference. But when it's talking about all these other things that are becoming part of your business that are critical, they're just rotating through to get more money from you. If money is the choice that they're making for how they're going to break and make you do these things, then I'm not sure that that's a place I want to be. Right. It's it's going to hold you hostage, and it's going to be a huge problem, and everybody's bought into it. And so since I'm not the majority anymore and I'm the mi minority – no one's making a fuss about it. They're just going to keep paying for all these roaming things until all you're doing is paying 75 bills a month that are all for Adobe and Microsoft and blah, blah, blah. Because you're paying – if you're paying 30 – would you say $33 a month? Right, yeah. Right, so it was a suite and it was $600. But when people would buy it they and they bought the suite for $600, if they got it on sale and it was 400 great. Uh, but if it was – if it even at full price, if it was $600 – that's two years of your payments, right? Right. So if you're going to pay $33, so the question is, is there something new that's in every version as it comes out? And do you have the time to learn the new thing every time that you attach to it if they change the app? Because right. Because some that's people a good point. Like it the old way. 
Some people are still using old versions of, I mean, they kill Illustrator, and Illustrator's gone. And, you know, there's PageMaker. I mean, there's been a number of these tools over the years that people are still using. I still see them out there. Sure. But they'd be dead if they just pull it right offline. That is true. Yeah, you definitely, it it would be nice to have. Now, you know, out of the whole, I could probably pay a cheaper price, but I just... I just get everything because I can. <laughs> well, I, I use I use like maybe ten percent of it. <laughs> but that's why they sold the suite in the first place, right? Sure. People did the same thing. Someday I might need one of these six tools, and so we'll pay six hundred dollars. But you paid six hundred dollars once, right? And if you wanted to do that for three years, that's fine. You didn't have to pay any more, right? So you know, fundamentally, if you're paying thirty five dollars, you know, whatever it is, then you're paying. You know, four hundred dollars or whatever you're paying. Sure. Almost, you're just shy of four hundred dollars yep. a year. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's definitely costly. Now, fortunately, and I can I write it off in I my business. So, <laughs> no, it's a it's a good business point on their side to say, well, we need the money to support our staff, or you know, we're not going to be here, and so you can keep paying us. Right. And this we set it up to do this. And but my problem now is that that may be starting to be a trend that may be making its way even into data recovery. Hmm. Which I haven't felt before, um, because you know I I do understand too. Even with the Rapids bar, that one of the issues, and, and I'm fine for paying for the updates if you need the updates. But now you're talking about a tool that might be dependent upon being there, or it doesn't work. Right, right. So you can pay all you want for it, but it'll be it won't work if you need the service for that to happen. If you haven't paid your fee. Mm. And that could put a lot of people in a precarious position. Hey, let's take a, a quick commercial break here, and then we'll uh, we'll continue on with this conversation. Uh, our show today is brought to you by Reclaim Me Pro. Reclaim Me Pro is the all-in-one, highly configurable data recovery software for both beginners and experts. Recovers data from multiple file systems, including Windows, Linux, and Mac OS. You can find lost partitions. You can save and load your saved state. It's equipped with a highly configurable disk imager. It does sector-by-sector, virtual hard disk, and VHDX. Reads most partitioning schemes for Microsoft and Linux. Powerful RAID analysis tools for complex RAID recovery. They also offer free data recovery training to help you understand partitions, file systems, RAID recovery, and more. For a 14-day free trial, go to reclaimme-pro.com. That's R-E-C-L-A-I-M-E-P-R-O.com. And when you decide to purchase, use the offer code PODNUTS for a 50% discount. All right. Well, I want to kind of move into another area we kind of talked about last time where we were talking about having having a way that you could plug a hard drive into a system and have a power switch on it so you could power cycle it. You could plug a hard drive into a running Windows system or Linux system or whatever, turn the switch on, rescan for that drive, find the drive. So I ended up buying one that fits in a five and a quarter inch bay and it has the three and a half inch and the two and a half inch basically slide in. You slide it in, you close the door, you can rescan, it finds that finds that hard drive and you're able to do whatever you want. Copy files over clone to drive, whatever you need to do right from the SATA ports on the motherboard versus trying to go through a USB dock. And it's it's a lot faster and it's actually fairly easy to do. And plus it gives you that, it's just a nice little power switch you can power cycle it on and off. So uh, I, I appreciate that tip. And I it, the one I ended up buying was a D-Shot and I'll, I'll have to put a link in the show notes. But 
it's been great. I wanted something that I could basically slide a drive in because I had it to where I could plug the drives in manually. But, you know, I get a little lazy pulling the cables out and plugging them in. And then you got to have somewhere for the drive to sit. So these drive bays actually hold the drive in place and it works perfectly. So I, I like that. Well, good. I'm glad you, I mean, it was an easy thing. And like I said, we kind of do that here all the time or do it in our, in, you know, our shop or on classes and things like that. And that's just the normal thing. And people just didn't realize that you can do this things on the fly, that there really wasn't you know, anything magical to that. It was already built into the system. They just make it sound like it's something special. Well, I, and that's what I thought. I thought the hot swappable, you got to have it on your motherboard to be hot swappable. And, and the reality was once you taught me that little trick there, it was like, no, you don't. You can take any computer and plug any hard drive in, rescan the system and under disk management and boom, done. There it is. <laughs> yep. Yep. And hopefully other people use it. I mean, it's, it's really, it's really not that hard. And the, the other thing too is, so from a standpoint of data recovery, I mean, you're never, you don't ever do data recovery from like a USB drive doc, do you? Uh, not from a, a USB drive doc. So understand too, most of the time what's happening first is we're doing our clones. We're doing our physical clones. We're using SATA. We're using whatever device or whatever tool to get the actual clone. Okay. Uh, and then after that, after we have a clone, then we maybe use a USB dock in order to read the clone. So the logical that we've already done. Okay. And, and that's just as efficient as having it plugged into a SATA port? Uh, Speed-wise, no, it's not. But it's not about speed at that point. About that point in time, uh, it's about number of drives plugged into a system and how much I can do. Like Because once we've gotten that far, that's the easy part. We have a working drive. It's not hard to build a table to tell the people. Ah, okay. Uh, so so that's, not, that's not the problem from, from that perspective. It's... Uh, it's it's once we have that that our long process is the clone the fixing the drive the clone I mean that stuff isn't fast at all so by comparison that's that's really what the problem is is just trying to get enough that we're doing all these logical drives and plugging them in the system we're doing USB three so in many cases it's fast enough right but, okay um, but you know it's it's not going to be as fast as and sometimes we're doing sata sometimes we're doing uh because i use sas ports as well i have sas ports for anything that's sata i can just plug sas right into them so i can plug eight drives in at a time in most of my systems so okay nice yep so so that's not the hard part is still like i said it's still the clone the fixing the drive um and getting that stuff running uh it's not it's not uh it's not a problem. Now, do you, now, the way you clone drives, are you using mostly hardware to do that or just using a piece of software to clone that drive or a combination of both? Um, no, we're always using hardware. We're always using uh, DeepSpar, Natola, a PC3000. Okay. It's extremely rare that we're using a piece of software. Um, we're, we're having to repair drives, manually fix a drive, and then from there then cloning that drive that we've repaired, done a head replacement or something on. And then afterwards, we'll use software to do the logical side. But, you know, that's a misconception a lot of people have. When I say data recovery, they want to know, you know, why should I take your class? What are you going to teach me that's, you know, not the same as I went and downloaded a piece of software online and then scanned the drive? Like, that's completely worthless and actually pretty detrimental for the drive. And I would would 
recommend no one ever do that uh, because that is the worst possible thing that you can do to a drive. Uh, as you touch the drive and you're trying to build the tree or using the software, you're you're touching every sector, but you're not making a copy of it while you're doing it. And so that means when you're done, the drive could die, and you'll you'll have a tree. You'll have a pretty tree that'll tell you what you want to recover, but you won't ever be able to recover the data. And so it's 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 the worst thing that you can possibly do. And so I do have to explain a lot of times to people how that works and that we're doing hardware. We're dealing with the physical side. We're not dealing with just some piece of software that you can download. That's the, that's the smallest piece of anything that I even try to teach anybody. I don't teach them how to click a button. That's not what I do at all. Right. When we're taking class, I assume everybody's clicked the button and they've run the software <laughs> and they built a tree before, and I don't even go over it. I don't even talk about that piece, all the stuff everybody seems to think that's what they're doing. We're doing physical repair, rebuilding of drives, head assemblies, looking at damaged sectors and trying to figure out how we're going to deal with those after the fact. So a rule of thumb is always going to be, obviously, and we, we even teach this kind of in the computer repair field, is that if you have, if you come up on a damaged drive, the first thing you want to do is clone or make an image of that drive to get that to make sure that you've got all the data intact as quickly as possible. Yeah, and, there's there's absolutely no other way that you should do it. You should always be making a clone and dealing with it from that standpoint first before you're even thinking about doing anything else. Now, is there so DeepSpar? We've talked a little bit about that in the past, and I can't quite remember. DeepSpar is a it's a hardware piece of equipment that does what? Well, actually, the company's name is DeepSpar, and they make several tools. Okay. And when I, so when I say DeepSpar, I mean the DeepSpar Disk Imager. And the DeepSpar Disk Imager looks like a card, and uh, the card controls everything. So on one side of the card, you have the source drive. So you have uh, what, you're, what you're trying to read, the damage drive, and it can control power. So it'll have a PETA, a SATA connector. You can do 2.5-inch drives, 3.5-inch drives, and... Then it has a destination drive that it can write to, so it all passes through the card altogether. Okay. So, uh, so at least from that standpoint, it does everything, and it has the software built in basically uh, on the device or all the control mechanisms, and you boot from a flash memory stick basically. So there's no Windows system. There's nothing that you're booting on. Okay. You're booting a DOS-based um, device. And then from there, you're uh, running this analysis, this recovery, this, you know, sector by sector, and we're dealing with them in multiple passes as well. We're not dealing with just um, one single, you know, pass going forward like most of the tools that you would download online would do. We have the ability to deal with individual sectors and treat it kind of like a um, like a BitTorrent. If you think of your drive as a BitTorrent and you were going to download the whole thing, does it matter what order it comes in? Does it matter where? I mean, because you're looking at your good sectors first and getting all the good stuff and then you're getting the bad stuff uh actually a bit turret works the opposite it gets all the stuff that is least likely to be uh readable later tries to download all that first and increase the amount of good stuff as it goes but um but on a hard drive we're getting all the good stuff and then we go back and focus on the bad stuff and we do it sector by sector so we don't have to do a concurrent reading of a drive forward we can do it a number of different ways and make multiple passes on it and what it does is is it's going to go over that sector if it's a damaged sector and it's going to go over it time and time again until it can either get something off of it or it just i'm sure there's a point where it just says there we can't get anything from that sector 
Well, we are trying to, uh, you know, we're, it's, it's not just going over and over. Like we're, we can be judicious in what we're choosing to do. So if we think that there's more damage being done, we can skip a section and come back to it later. Okay. Um, so, so there's a bunch of things uh, that we're trying to also make sure that the health of the drive is, is you know, that it's going to survive and that it's not going to bite the big one or get a scratch <laughs> in it or something going to happen to it. So we're trying to get all the good stuff. We only focus on the bad stuff once we've whittled that away. Okay. And so how much does that equipment actually cost? Well, the base price uh, is it's about $3,500 for the card itself for okay. what they call version 4. And then, um, and then there's additional things that you can buy. So, for instance, if you want to do USB drives, if you want to do uh, the ones that are all in one enclosure where you can't take the container off easily, that it, once you have the container off, you're stuck with a USB adapter – there's ways on many of those drives to convert them to a SATA drive by breaking them and resoldering on a SATA connector, um, but you can do them natively. They have their own protocol, and you can communicate with them, but you need a special device in order to communicate with them. So we have devices that will allow us to do that, and I mean there's other tools as well. So there's a PCA3000, which also has a way of natively talking to a USB drive. And uh, an Atola also has a way of talking to a USB drive. And then Atola is about to come out with an item that does SAS. So you can actually do SAS directly on the Atola. Uh, the DeepSpar has a separate, entirely different card for SAS. Uh, it has, and that card, for instance, is $6,000. So you're actually buying an entirely new. Uh, and I may have the pricing wrong. Don't quote me because when I buy mine or when I do something, it's usually one of the first ones. So sometimes I get a higher price or a lower price depending on what happens. Okay, gotcha. But but the price of the deep spar I do know to be that it's the base price was thirty five hundred dollars or something. So uh, and then you can get discounts or something depending upon you know I know in my class they give people a ten percent discount. So okay. So but there are, there definitely is. Um, a, a, an entirely different field of dealing with these things versus what ha happens when you just have a hard drive like a USB device plugged in to your computer and you're running some software on it. Gotcha. Now, these cards that you buy, now, are they plugged into computers or are they standalone cards? Because you said they're booted up from a flash drive, but I would imagine they still have to have some sort of component that they're plugged into, correct? Yeah. Uh, so, really, what I do is I put the card in a, uh, in just on a motherboard. I just buy. You know, a generic – it's not about speed. It's not about Intel processor. It's not about any of that at this point. So uh, I have just generic $70 motherboards that are you know, the best possible motherboard I can get for this purpose for I.O., for, for the speed okay. perspective. And so that's what I'm using, and I just leave it open on the table. I don't even – uh, I don't even try to build the case around it or do anything. So I'll just have, you know, 16 of these things going around in a circle on a table with, uh, with an open motherboard with power supplies sitting there on the table. And that way I can jerk cards in and out, or I can put stuff on, or I can reconnect stuff if I need to. I don't have to worry about, uh, anything else happening from that standpoint. Gotcha. So now you, it, I mean, you literally can set the motherboard on the table and you just, I mean, you don't set, you don't, you never made a carrier or anything to, for them no, to sit uh, in. I use, um, I use some foam. I use some of the packing okay. that is like anti-static. They use yeah. for hard drives. When you buy a hard drive case, like a big case of them, 
they'll send you this anti-static foam that'll be like us you know it'll be the same size as the motherboard okay so i i carry those things around uh with me when i'm going to do the class i don't try to like i said i don't try to build a case i don't do anything and i mean they've survived years of me teaching classes and taking things around and doing things at this point um so i'm pretty impressed with the process and and it looks a lot like my lab. It looks like the same process I'm using. So I don't try to fancy things up because in data recovery, you know, different stuff comes in every day. It's not always, not always just one little hard drive or one little – like I'm disassembling stuff, reassembling stuff, rate arrays are being – and, you know, one day I'm going to need eight drives hooked up to one machine and another day I need 16. So I'm pulling cards out, moving them around all the time. Uh, it's pretty volatile from that perspective. It's not – it's not like some static, pretty office where you know everybody's sitting down doing accounting at a enclosed machine. <laughs> no, that's pretty cool. I I like the the efficiency of that. Now, from that standpoint, <laughs> I'm just thinking all these these uh, motherboards sitting around and uh, just sitting out there in the open. But I mean, that's that sounds awesome. Is there well, anything is, again? They're they're you know fifty seventy dollars. Sometimes I get them on sale for. Thirty dollars. The only thing okay. that's expensive in them, like I'm literally doing like two or four gigs of RAM, a cheap twenty dollar processor. Like I, you don't need anything expensive on the hardware side for that piece to work. There's some, you know, some machines like my Windows machines that do the logical side. I may really have to, you know, and those are faster machines. Those have more RAM, especially ones that do RAID arrays. So I, I have a list of those kind of things that I might have for a different purpose, but for the deep spars themselves for this particular recovery process it's not a meaty machine um i will have a meaty machine for um um for my pc3000 my pc3000 is a windows based system and it okay. does you know recovery processes but it does have does need some power so so there are some things that i do do uh, enclosed and have but i do have these you know 16 other ones that I kind of travel with or walk around with that have um, none of that. Now, is there any type of, uh, let me preface it this way, is there any type of cloning docks that are actually higher end than the cheap $100 ones that we normally buy for doing clones or actually hooking up to your computers that you can actually press a button and try to clone the drive in a safe manner? Or is it just like that's not the way to do it? Um, I think we we have talked about that before, um, and there are some people who have tested some and done stuff. I don't mess with those anymore at all. Okay, I don't waste any of my time dealing with those. Uh, you know, if I'm because of the equipment that I'm dealing with in a lot of cases is expensive and you know far more robust from that standpoint. I don't bother with these twenty dollar docs to copy stuff because they can't most of the time tell you what you missed. They can't. They don't really. You know, they may try to pop up a box and say, yeah, I certified I recurred, you know, I did this image and it was 100% or something like that. But you don't know. You're completely blind. Sure. So so I don't really mess with that kind of stuff anymore. If I was going to – if I really wanted to do it, the fastest tool I've ever seen is a piece of software actually that if it's plugged into, you know, a laptop with a USB 3 on it, um, the people who make uh, X-Ways Forensics, which there's another tool called WinHex. Uh, so you can get WinHex Specialist. You can clone a drive from drive to drive, and it'll do like six gigs a minute. So it's a pretty fast device, a pretty fast piece of software, and I would prefer to do that if I had to do that or the ability to make a DD image. 
I don't just plug two drives in, hit a button, and say go. And and at least that's one of the things, like the Rapids bar, that's what it looks like. It looks like a little device, and there's a source and a, and a destination and a little window on it. But it does at least inform you the status. And that's what they tried to make. They tried to make a box that if you didn't want to connect it and you didn't want to connect it to the world, it does have a standalone mode. And its standalone mode works like that. It has a little display window, and you plug in the two drives, you hit image, and then it will tell you, and you'll actually see it do the status and the update piece by piece as it goes. Um, it's not a hundred dollars. That's the you know it's right. like eight hundred dollars or something. Okay. So um, it's not a cheap device, but I, I can't live without knowing the true status of it. I just can't trust the fact that some box with an embedded linux thing said that it cloned it and it told me that that it did and then you don't ever know when you have a problem something crashes something doesn't work how do you know what that problem was and whether or not you actually got a good and complete copy yeah that's a good point so i I would say that if you're going to do this yeah you definitely need to uh, have the right equipment to do it properly well, you know, everybody is depending on me to give them the right thing, and I need to make sure that I'm always right. <laughs> I don't want to give them something where I don't know what actually happened. And that's a good point. I mean, there's there's a lot of times if you're using some sort of either a cloning hard drive dock or software, yeah, you're right. It says it's completed, but I you know, I played around with a cloning piece of hardware, just a, a USB 3.0 drive plug in two drives, hit the button, and it's a 50-50 chance of whether it's going to work or not. And so, yeah, I just do it just for for playing around with. But my point is, I guess that stuff doesn't work, and it doesn't give me enough knowledge to know what I'm actually looking at. And uh, and you can't really do that in your business. No, I I, I agree. I mean, it's, you know, I wish I had a better answer for you, but I got to be honest, I just don't mess around with cheap stuff anymore. Right. So it's what? Just, so from a stand from that standpoint, what if you were to do data recovery, or you wanted to do data recovery? Let's say you're not doing hundreds of units at a time, like like you're dealing with all the time, but you're doing just a handful. What what types of things would you tell people they need, really need to have just to get started? Um, I mean, there's definitely a couple of pieces of software that can do a good job, and you can do uh cloning with less expensive uh equipment from a standpoint of using hardware and software to make that happen so that you're not blind in the process okay um and so there are tools like media tools pro is one of the tools that's out there it's a dos based application that can actually do a reverse image there's a uh, linux applications like uh, dd rescue which uh is you know, it's been around for a long time. It can actually do a pretty good job. the The problem is none of those tools can control power and resets and uh, head assemblies. Uh, so you can actually turn off a specific head if one side of the bladder is scratched. So, so those are some problems that some of those tools okay. will have uh, that will kind of be fine if you're just looking to only go so far. But you know, if you know that there's a head or you could test for a head problem, then why would you? risk doing something on a tool that can't do those things right that's my problem right uh but i understand from the cost perspective if nobody can afford those or they're not going to do them on a regular basis and they're just going to do one here and there that 
you know, Media Tools Pro may be a good solution for you, or just learning Linux and doing um, DD Rescue or um, My Rescue. There's another tool called My Rescue, and you can do what's called a reverse image. Um, that may be fine. Those, those may be good for just your regular everyday stuff. So I'd be more inclined to do um, just like a Linux box with uh, two USB 3 ports on it or something, or uh, two SATA ports on it, and then connect those up and then do. Uh, my rescue from source to image, and then that way, if something happens, I can also do a reverse image. Um, and and if it's fine, DD Rescue will actually work, and it'll actually do the full image as well, and it'll change granularity on its own as it's going. So, I would still lean more in that direction to try to save money. Gotcha. Okay. And I got one last question, and, and we'll kind of wrap up here. But where? Because somebody asked me this the other day, where do you get your donor drives from? In other words, if your hard drives are, you have a, a piece of hardware on there, the the motherboard or whatever you want to call it that's on there, or you've got you've got to reassemble the heads or, or whatever it is you're doing, where do you get the donor drives to? Because we've talked before, and you said you have to you have to match those up exactly. And how how close does they have to be? And how do you figure out how to get those drives? Well, there's a there's a whole table of information for different drives for each drive. There are certain things that you need to know. Like, okay. Uh, C, you know, Seagates have date codes. There's a uh, the first three characters may indicate how many of uh, the serial number may indicate how many platters there are. Uh, there may be you know part of the serial number that you have to pull out. There may be part of a model number that tells you like Mac store drives can you know tell you which ones are the preamp and the head assembly. There's labels on the drives that will tell you certain things, and you do need to know what those are per a specific drive. And okay. so, so, and some people have tried to publish those out there. I teach them in my class when I'm doing it in the class. Uh, but when you're looking for donor drives, you're looking for anybody who will sell the drive. I mean, fundamentally you're trying to do everything you can to find matching drives and hunt them down. And so <coughs> one of the things, excuse me, <coughs> one of the things I do, I, I do search shop eBay. I do, you know, sometimes send out emails to a couple of brokers. There are a couple of brokers. I have a data recovery certification group, and uh, it's a Google group. So if you just search for data recovery certification, you don't have to be certified, or I don't require you to be, you know, having had take the class to be in the group. So you can join the group, and uh, and I'll approve it. And in the group, there's other people who talk about donor drives, and there's some brokers. There's about five or six brokers who you can pay to get you hard drives. So if you're looking for something specific that's really hard to get, they will hunt them down for you, but they will also charge you quite a bit. Okay. So, uh, you know, it's about $100, $150 per drive extra than what you normally would pay. But if you're looking for one and you can't find it anywhere and it's rare like a Raptor drive or something like that where you can't get one and you're going to have to destroy it because that's really what you're doing is you're you're taking it apart and you're rebuilding the drive. Now, I'm going to say right now, if you just heard me say that and people go, oh, good, I'm going to go rebuild my own drives. Well, you need to buy like 12 practice drives and then go practice on 12 drives to get them working. Um, I, like I said, I teach a class that will eliminate spending a lot of time trying to figure those things out that you would have to build yourself or figure out how to do those things. But if you want to learn how to do it, don't try to rebuild your drive till you've done 12 other drives. And made them work. So once you physically disassembled them, reassembled them, got them working, disassembled them, took heads out of one, put them in another one, got it working, then I'm going to say you don't know what you're doing. And so it just takes practice. I'm not saying you can't figure it out, but that's primarily what you have to do. And 
you're going to need these donor drives to match. And so you'll look at eBay and you'll have to send an email to the guy if you're looking on eBay. If you want to rebuild the drive, just because he has a label up and it matches all the stuff that you want doesn't mean that that's the drive he's going to send you. Right. He may have 17 drives that say one terabyte and you're trying to buy a one terabyte drive. It's not going to – it might not be that drive. So literally what you're trying to do at that point in time is is – Make it, send him an email and make sure that that's the drive that you're going to get. And if it is the drive you're going to get, then you know at least he'll respond. Don't buy it until till then, until that's what he's already said. Gotcha. So is there any is there any reason to keep like because obviously not everything is going to break on a hard drive. So is there any reason to keep old drives around for parts? Um. Or- yeah. I mean, mostly boards at that point. Okay. I mean, if you have drives that have you know a head on them. Or something that, but you know, maybe if it still works. But the problem is, you need a working drive in order to know that it's working. You want to swap <laughs> right. apart with something that might not be working. That's a good point. So I typically start with a known working drive so that we can test it and figure it out before we before we go down that path. Now, what's some of the oldest drives that you've actually had to find? Um, I've had to go back all the way into the early 90s and find old SCSI drives. Oh my gosh. Okay. Wow. <laughs> well, I'm going to I'm going to go one one uh, one up on you and I'm going to say that everybody don't practice on drives. Just take Scott's course and let him teach <laughs> you how to do it properly cuz really I, this is yeah, you can practice and all that kind of stuff, but the reality is if you're going to do this for a living, you're going to do this as part of your business, you need to learn from somebody who's been doing it forever. And not not saying you're old, Scott, but uh, you have been doing it for a long time. So instead of learning from your own mistakes, learn from somebody else's. It's going to save you a lot of time and a lot of money, and his course is actually very reasonable. So definitely check him out on that and uh, just make the time to uh, to go out and take that course and get into data recovery. So well, I appreciate you. I appreciate the plug. <laughs> no, I, I honestly believe it because I, that's how we do. Yes. There are certain things we can get away with learning on our own and we, we might mess some things up but when you're talking about people's data. This is something so critical that there's no point in messing around with it. You know, I, I like I said, I'd rather learn from your mistakes than my own. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, and that's the goal. And hopefully, somebody's listening that's going to show up in Australia or something. Give me, a, give me, a, you know, send me an email, and I'll sign you up. And there you go. Uh, otherwise, we're going into next year because uh, I don't come back until around Christmas. All right. Well, it sounds good, Scott. I really appreciate you coming out and sharing. And you know, I know sometimes you you think that. Maybe you're just rambling, but it's been a lot of good information and a lot of good thought process on how things are changing in this industry and things that everybody needs to be aware of as we delve into data recovery and these types of things to be able to to run our businesses and, and do what we do on a regular basis. So I definitely appreciate all the info. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you. No problem. All right. So if, if people want to find out about these great classes that you have now, do you still do the online courses? Yeah, uh, I still have a distance learning course where people okay. can can take that and then just learn uh, from on their own speed at their own time. And, and I actually have quite a few uh, different things in that class than the regular class because uh, I provide past history. So I have 
uh, other classes that are combined in there so that they can go back and see the old way or the way things happened before because there's only so much I can talk about when I'm physically in class and there's you know 50 hours of time sure uh, so I have about 200 hours of stuff on on that kit and all that information is on your website over at my hard drive died right Yes, myharddrivedie.com, and if you, uh, you'll see there's, there's a tab for uh, data recovery classes, and then there's a presentation page, and you'll, if you scroll that page, you'll see YouTube videos and materials, and you'll see a link to my um, FTP site where I also put up a lot of other materials, <clears throat> so, so everybody can at least go and see some of my previous presentations or some of the current stuff that's going on. Excellent. So guys, if you are listening to this and you are in Australia, definitely check out his class that will be here. When when is the actual class? Uh, it starts December 7th and then runs till whatever, five days, the 13th or something. Okay. A couple weeks from now. Sounds good. And then obviously you'll be doing classes in your normal spots come the new year. Yeah, I just haven't put anything up. I do have uh, two criminal trials that I have to deal with at the beginning of the year, and it's going to take a lot of my time. So it's hard for me to like line up some classes. But I'm trying to. I'm probably going to teach a, a Deep Spark class and then a Tola class uh, in two different parts of the year. So a January class and then a March class as well. So uh, so there are some different classes that may be coming up. So uh, take a look at them and and see if you're interested. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely go to myharddrivedie.com and you can check all that information out there. And when he has new classes coming up, he puts all that stuff up there, plus all the other free information he gives away. So definitely appreciate that. You can learn a lot, but I'm just going to say, again, if you want to learn how to take apart hard drives and do it properly, get a hold of Scott. All right. Well, if, uh, if you guys have any questions for us on this show, you can email us at mhdd at podnets.com. And if you want to leave a voicemail, you can call 1-888-697-0162. And I want to thank Reclaim Me Pro for sponsoring this episode of My Hard Drive Died. I want to thank everyone for listening and subscribing to the show. We'll see you next time on My Hard Drive Died. Music provided by Steve Cherubino at stevecherubino.com.